1: New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.
0: Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University, the host of the channel, and today I am with Eileen Grable, the author of a new book just published by MIT Press in 2017. This is when things don't fall apart. Global financial governance and developmental finance in an age of productive incoherence. This is a very interesting topic and very interesting uh, um, title. Welcome, Eileen. Can you please just tell us about your current affiliation and yourself?
1: Yes, I'm an economist, and I am on the faculty at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. And at the Corbell School, I co-direct a graduate program in global finance, trade, and economic integration. I also do some consulting work um, with various organizations within the UN system that focus on global financial governance. Um, in particular, um, I'm currently serving on an expert committee on the UN uh, Conference on Trade and Economic Development that is focusing on financing for development in the context of the sustainable development goals. And I've done some work with some other UN agencies as well.
0: Very good. I see from your CV that you are also co-editor of the review of international political economy and that you are the co-director of this uh, MA program with a very interesting title, which is global finance, trade and economic integration. In fact, before the book, I even wanted to start from this master program. Uh, do you feel there is any need to update the master program in, in, in the age we are living today with so many threats to uh, economic integration and global trade?
1: Uh, yes, in fact, my colleagues and I, I think, keep a very firm eye on what's happening in the global economy and in the global policy community, um, and certainly the kinds of courses that we teach are very much driven by you know, research interests on the part of the faculty and this very dynamic world that we're living in. So we've really had to rethink a lot of the things that we talk about with students that relate to the global financial system, global trade tensions, changes in global labor markets, cutting cutting edge issues like cryptocurrencies, robotization. These are all things that we've been trying uh, to really bring to the fore um, in our work with students. And in terms of the journal that I was co-editing, I'd stepped down um, about two years ago after a four-year term of co-editing the Review of International Political Economy. Um, And the time that I spent... Um, with my colleagues um, co editing the Review of International Political Economy, I think was especially helpful to me since I'm trained as, as an economist. Um, It gave working with the journal really gave me the opportunity to get to know the field of international political economy and comparative political economy as understood by political scientists. And I think that that's really enriched my work and enriched my thinking. It's made me much more interdisciplinary.
0: Okay, let's start from, even before the first chapter, let's start from the preface. You have a beautiful preface by a top economist, Danny Roderick from Harvard University, and the preface starts uh, like this. It happens only rarely that, and it is all the more pleasurable because of it, you pick up a manuscript that fundamentally changes the way you look at certain things. This is one such Book. Eileen Grable has produced a daring and delightful reinterpretation of developments in global finance, finance since the Asian financial crisis of 1997. So, this is a very, very beautiful uh, endorsement. Can you tell us about the origin of this very timely book?
1: Sure. I was, and thank you for, for raising. Uh, Danny Roderick's forward, I was tremendously honored and humbled uh, by what Danny Roderick wrote about the book. He's long been an intellectual hero of mine and someone whose work that I rely on very heavily, um, as you can certainly see in the book itself. And so his praise really meant a great deal to me. Um, And stepping back from that, in terms of the origins of the book, um, there's a kind of interesting origin story about the book. And that is that early in the global financial crisis, around 2010, so that's just about two years into the global crisis, what started to happen is that I observed a number of changes that were going on that seemed to be haphazard in Kuwait, changes in various aspects of global financial governance, and also in the institutions, the norms, and the practices that really um, meant a great deal um, to developing country economies. And so just as an example, um, it seemed that just a few years into the crisis, I was taking note of changes in thinking and practices Around a policy instrument that's called capital controls. And capital controls are simply put, policies that manage international movements of money. And early in the global crisis, around 2010, what I started to notice was that capital controls were coming back into fashion. They had been really um, looked down upon by economists and policymakers during the long neoliberal era. And around 2010, we started to see countries in crisis using capital controls, and furthermore, that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, started endorsing, and in some cases, even prescribing capital controls. And so that really caught my attention in 2010. Something else I started to notice at about the same time was that not only were there changes emerging in the realm of capital controls, but there were also changes emerging inside the International Monetary Fund and in the International Monetary Fund's relationship with some of its former clients. And so I really began to think about whether we were seeing changes, changes which I'll just underscore were very inconsistent in nature. And I began to think around 2010, that we were entering a new period, um, indeed, a new kind of period, an interregnum, if you will, that was really marked by incoherence and aperture and uneven change in the global financial landscape. And so early on, I started presenting some research along these lines at conferences. I started to publish some papers that really probed these kinds of issues And what really surprised me was the reception that greeted my ideas um, around 2010, 2011. And here to just put it plainly, the reception was that everyone hated what I was saying um, and told me that I was wrong, that I was naive, um, that I was delusional. And I remember very well um, an experience I had at a conference of some very prominent development economists, many of whom were long friends of mine, collaborators of mine. Um, And I started presenting these ideas in a kind of tentative fashion, um, and no one was convinced. And indeed, the crowd was quite angered by what I was saying, because it suggested something which appeared to be naive, and empirically incorrect, and giving credit to actors like the International Monetary Fund that many of us, including um, in earlier work of mine, had been very critical of institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. So I encountered tremendous pushback. And I would say that ultimately, once I licked my wounds, that pushback was extremely helpful to me, because it really prodded me To be very careful, to do some very, very careful, almost Talmudic um, empirical research, and to deepen and clarify and extend my arguments. And so it really was very helpful to me in terms of challenging me to get the facts right. And it also challenged me, I would say, on a broader theoretical level, to think more carefully about how to understand economic, social, political, and institutional change. And as it turned out, the long crisis as it unfolded over really the next eight years gave me a lot of opportunity to broaden my empirical gaze against um, uh, uh, my empirical gaze so that I was looking at other aspects of the global financial landscape. And I began to do some more research for the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development on Financial Architectures. I was able to have some conversations with policymakers that were part of what's called um, the Union of South American Nations, known as UNISOR. I was able to talk to some colleagues at the International Monetary Fund and at crisis support and development finance institutions that were based in the developing world. And all of that gave me a lot of opportunity to ground my arguments empirically. And ultimately, this long story is to say that all of this came together um, in a book, and the book that um, has just been published.
0: Uh, By the way, in our previous episode, we interviewed uh, Ben Clift from the University of Warwick in the UK, and he just published a book on the IMF. The book is titled The IMF and the Politics of Austerity in the Wake of the Global Financial Crisis. There are some similarities between that book and yours, because uh, they are both about uh, an evolution. In the case of the IMF, uh, Ben Clift argues that, that there is no longer a monolithical uh, orthodoxy, and uh, there are changes that are happening. Uh, and your book is more ambitious in, ambitious in the sense that you describe this transformation at the global level, mentioning so many institutions and the interaction between the transformations of each institutions. Uh, for for the listeners, maybe I should mention something of the structure, the contents. We have uh, Four parts and eight chapters. And um, it's very detailed on analyzing uh, around the world what has been uh, uh, happening. But from the subtitle, we have this key word, which is incoherence. And you define it uh, productive incoherence. So this book is about uh, not big. Changes of paradigm at global level, but about what you call a myriad of local heresies. So, can you please introduce uh, this idea of change that happens in a non systematic way and thanks to several uh, changes at local level?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, one of my chief goals in the book is really to defend what I call the productive incoherence thesis. And what I argue is that the changes that we are confronting today appear inconsistent, contradictory, uncoordinated, ad hoc, fragmented, and above all, evolutionary. And it's in this sense that I think that global financial governance, taken as a whole, is incoherent. This is really because what we're seeing is an unruly kind of muscular pragmatism that is emerging as we see policymakers learning from experience, learning by doing, learning from others, uh, learning from failures and successes. Um, And this kind of pragmatism means that what we're seeing is that adjustments are taking place in financial governance practices and policies as necessary and in response to new challenges and new opportunities. And so it's a very kind of opportunistic strategy. And so what I think we're seeing right now um, is the emergence of what I call an increasingly dense, pluripolar global financial landscape. And it's in that sense that I see incoherence emerging. And I would say that, you know, provocatively and controversially, I argue that incoherence in global financial governance is actually productive rather than debilitating of development. And I should note that economists, and again, economics is the discipline that I'm trained in, economists have a kind of predilection Toward coherence. Economists tend to build tidy analytical models that are based on mathematical proofs, and they focus on the design and the implementation of coherent systems. An example of a coherent system would be the Bretton Woods system that emerged after World War II, or the neoliberalism of the last several decades, or state capitalism. These would be examples of coherent systems that really derive from the ideas on economist blackboards. What I see at the present time is the emergence of incoherence. And again, what I argue is that the incoherence is actually productive because what we're seeing is at the moment, the absence of a kind of overarching, coherent model to replace neoliberalism. We don't yet have a new ism that's in place. And in the context of this incoherence, what developing countries are experiencing is increasing room to experiment with new institutional forms and practices to create new kinds of networks and opportunities for social learning, in development. And this is really in stark contrast to the stultifying coherence of the neoliberal era. So that what we see now is that developing countries are enjoying a kind of degree of autonomy to innovate in ways that really enhance financial stability, have the potential to enhance financial resilience, financial inclusion, and learning. Um, and it's in these respects that I see incoherence as being productive of the ability to support diversity and experimentation that's really necessary to support social learning and to promote development.
0: There is a, probably this is a this has been helpful for you to develop this notion of incoherence. Uh, I am referring to uh, the contribution of uh, Albert Otto irschman and even in uh, the foreword by Danny Roderick, he refers to this uh, very important presence of irschman in uh, your book. So can you tell us uh, why it is so important for you and what's the role of uh, irschman in uh, this idea of um, evolution?
1: Sure. I I, I take great inspiration from Albert Hirschman's work. And indeed, Albert Hirschman's ideas really form the kind of intellectual scaffolding for the book. I use Hirschman's seminal ideas in order to develop a lens through which I can examine and appreciate the unfolding changes in global financial governance. It's been interesting that the global financial crisis and indeed earlier transitions like the fall of the Berlin Wall um, did a great deal to generate new interest in the very classic ideas of John Maynard Keynes and modern day Keynesian economists like Hyman Minsky. Um, Obviously, the crises have also generated a great deal of interest in the seminal work of Karl Polanyi, particularly his idea of the double movement. Um, And certainly um, there has been a renewal of interest um, in the work of Karl Marx, even by writers in the business press. Notably, this really hasn't happened with Albert Hirschman's work, despite the publication of two recent books by Albert Hirschman's biographer, um, and the fact that some development economists, I would say most prominently Danny Roderick, but I would also note David Ellerman um, and others such as ha Chang, Chang, uh, Robert Wade, also take some inspiration from isolated aspects of Hirschman's work. Um, but to my knowledge, no one has engaged the breadth Of Hirschman's truly massive and broad-ranging IRV, in order to try to make sense out of the global financial crisis, and Hirschman's work is important to me on a number of levels. And I would say that some of the most important features of Hirschman's work that I find most pregnant in terms of my own project is Hirschman's commitment to the idea that meaningful change can and should come about through the proliferation of partial, limited, and pragmatic responses, and as a consequence of what are often disconnected, ad hoc experiments um, and inconsistent adjustments. This was a theme in much of Hirschman's work where he argued that change can and should come about through experimentation, pragmatism, through trial by error. And this attention that Hirschman placed on what he called the development process in the small, and this is a, a very famous phrase from Albert Hirschman's work, I think is very meaningful to me because it turns attention away from what we can think of as large-scale, epical ruptures Um, that I think receive a disproportionate amount of attention by social scientists who tend to focus on epical ruptures, let's say as exemplified by the Bretton Woods Revolution that followed World War II or by the neoliberal revolution of the 1970s. By historical standards, epical ruptures are in fact few and far between most social ideational and institutional change comes about through a much more gradual, messy, uneven process that often involves one step forward, two steps back. And Hirschman's work, I think, provides a kind of analytical frame for thinking about social and institutional and ideational change that takes us away from this excessive focus on epical ruptures, and and rather trains our attention on the small, on the uneven, on the ad hoc, on the inconsistent, and on the the disconnected. And so these are some things that I really take from Hirschman's work. Um, Other ideas that are really seminal in Hirschman's work that influence my own treatment of the global financial crisis is Hirschman's view that the process of development is a series of transformations, each of which amounts to a social experiment that permits learning by doing and learning by others. Um, And this is a really central idea in Hirschman's work, and he also explored it in some co-authored work with Charles Lindblom, who developed the idea of muddling through, and both Hirschman um, and Lindblom explored this idea of muddling through as a development strategy. And of course, getting back to the narrative of my book, I very much see policymakers in EMDEs, as as, that is, in emerging markets and developing country economies, as muddling through the challenges and opportunities of the crisis and the post-crisis environment. Another feature of Hirschman's work that's particularly important to me is his epistemic commitments. Hirschman, like John Maynard Keynes, the economist Frank Knight, Hayek, Popper, these were all um, scholars who really rejected the idea of epistemic arrogance on the knowability of the future and the kind of omniscient pretension that enables many social scientists to pre-narrate the future and to prejudge the significance of interventions. This is a really central theme in much of Hirschman's work. And again, I draw inspiration from it because when I look at the evolutions that are occurring in the global financial landscape, I really take issue with and push back against the kind of presumption that many of my colleagues in development economics have that enables them to prejudge the significance of innovation such that they feel that they can answer with certainty at this moment in time the question of, has the IMF changed? Is are the innovations associated with China meaningful or not? Are the BRICS an important phenomena that's changing the global financial landscape? If one has epistemic certainty, one can determine ex ante that yes or no, these are important innovations. Um, and the kind of humility and the embrace of epistemic uncertainty that's really a feature in Hirschman's Thought is very meaningful to me as I take a kind of open-minded view of what is occurring. One last point that I would oh note, it's all right about Hirschman's work that I take inspiration from is his commitment to the idea of what he called possibilism. Possibilism refers to the humility, the epistemic commitments that really enable. Hirschman to think about whether or not social change is viable under a variety of circumstances um, and really prevents him from prejudging the outcome of changes and to kind of an attempt to pre the future. And I take very seriously this idea of thinking about possibilism in the sense of alternative pathways to development and of not prejudging outcomes that are unfolding. I uh, guess yeah, this to is... Uh, about these ideas, which really fascinate me endlessly.
0: Yeah, this point by Irshman is in your conclusions, and there is a beautiful uh, uh, quotation where you see, well, basically it is about the role of social scientists and how he says that the words that we use are influencing the world. And so we have to be uh, very brave on the selection of our words and, uh, our, uh, passion can uh, actually allow social sciences to make an impact, but this wouldn't happen if they are not brave enough uh, but maybe what you just said about Hirschman is also the answer to a question I had ready for you which is about the absence of Karl Marx in this book, perhaps there is no Karl Marx because you don't dislike this idea of romantic um, raptures, romantic violent transformations
1: Yes, it's a re- it's a really good observation Andrea I mean, and and of course Karl Marx has much much to offer and I know that we are approaching a very important anniversary in the marxian tradition uh but you're quite right to note that I don't use or invoke Marx's work um in this book uh because of Marx's association with a kind of analytical tidiness and a monolithic view of capitalism as a kind of singular, impenetrable system um, that a transition from which can only occur in a kind of radical rupture where we may see a kind of teleological transition from one social system to another. And that's a really different model of social change than I have in mind. Again, I think it's one that has few empirical precedents so on that's on that level i tend to step away from it but then i would also note that i think in terms of what is happening in global financial governance that kind of reading of transformation where the only test of change the true test of change is the displacement of one regime by another I don't see that as what's happening right now. And, in, and of course, that kind of idea, I think, is really central to the Marxian tradition and to many other traditions in social science. Um, my focus is instead on evolution, on gradualism, on experimentation, and on unevenness. Okay, so let's go to really well with Marx.
0: Perfect. Let's go to a few examples then of uh, the financial institutions around the world that you describe. Some of them are very new, brand new, like the, the, the Chinese Asian Initiative. Um, so what are they doing? Where are they going? Is there a coherence in the path that uh, those, uh, those institutions are adopting in terms of transforming themselves and transforming the field?
1: It's a very good question, and in one chapter of my book, uh, this is Chapter Six, I develop a kind of case study where I look at evolutions in the institutional architecture of the financial systems of the Global South and the Global East. And in doing so, what I do is map uh, the evolution of some institutions whose existence actually predated. The global financial crisis but where the global financial crisis actually provided an impetus to expand the capacity of those institutions to expand their membership to expand their mission to expand the kind of products they offer their clients and so that's sort of one type of of institutional innovation that we've seen in the landscape of the global South and the global East. That is to say, changes in institutions whose existence predated the global crisis, but where the global crisis itself propelled um, a maturation of these institutions. And just to put some empirical meat on that point, the examples of those kinds of institutional arrangements include... A, a countercyclical liquidity support institution based in Latin America or that's called the Latin American Reserve Fund. The Spanish acronym for which is FLAR. That's an institution which provides crisis support finance to member countries um, in Latin America, and that institution expanded its capacity, its membership, the kinds of financing it provided during the crisis. Another pre-global financial crisis institution, which transformed itself during the global crisis, is one that's based in Southeast Asia. Um, And that's an institution that's called, it's a mouthful, the Chiang Mai Initiative Multilateralization. That's an initiative that involves members of what's called the Association for Southeast Asian Nations plus Japan, China, and South Korea. And the Chiang Mai Initiative Multilateralization is an institution which also aims to provide crisis support finance to member countries. And it transformed a good deal during the global financial crisis. It doubled the financial resources it had available. It introduced new kinds of products and instruments that were designed to provide precautionary support to countries in crisis. It developed what are called surveillance capabilities, which are essentially capabilities that allow its officials to assess the conditions of member countries' economies, partly as a way of determining whether or not countries are candidates for support. I should note that that institution has not yet dispersed any support, but the institution itself has deepened its capacities and deepened its institutional architecture. So those are two examples of institutions that predated the crisis but which used the crisis as a kind of moment to expand what they did. In terms of institutions that were essentially born during the crisis, the global crisis has also been very productive in terms of stimulating the creation of entirely new institutions that are based in the global South and East, and which aim to either provide crisis support finance, which is the traditional role of the International Monetary Fund, or institutions which provide what's called long-term project Finance. That's the traditional work performed by the World Bank and related institutions. And during the global crisis, there was a lot of innovation in financial architectures such that developing country policymakers created entirely new institutions that, in some limited domains, mirror the role of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Some concrete examples include the twin initiatives of the BRICS countries. The BRICS countries created their own development bank, which is called the New Development Bank. They also created a crisis support facility, which is called the Contingent Reserve Arrangement. Other innovations um, are innovations associated with China, which you've mentioned, China created the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is a massively capitalized bank that provides long-term project finance for infrastructure in particular, and that was a product of the global crisis. China has also created some 13 new other funds that are designed to provide finance, uh, both within the country and externally. Other examples of changes include perhaps lesser known initiatives. Um, There is an institution that's based in Eurasia, and it's called the Eurasian Fund for Stabilization and Development. It provides both crisis support finance and long-term project finance, and it was created by members of the Eurasian economic community during the global financial crisis. Other institutions that evolved during the crisis, getting back to the idea that some older institutions also changed during the crisis, China has several national development banks, which are often called policy banks. One is called the China Development Bank. Another is uh, called the Export-Import Bank. Brazil has a national development bank that's called the Bank, uh, the um, National Bank of Economic and Social Development, and it expand. Both, all of these national banks also expanded the scope of their operations during the crisis. The Development Bank of Latin America um, expanded its capacities, its membership, the kinds of instruments it uses during the crisis. And I should note one other older institution whose existence also predates the global crisis that's based in the Arab world. It's called the Arab Monetary Fund. The Arab Monetary Fund also started to provide new forms of crisis support to its 22 member nations during the global crisis. So when we look across the institutional landscape of the global south and the global east, we see a great deal of innovation, of trial and error, of institutional creation, uh, and also of expansion of older institutions. And for me, that's one of the cases that I think really exemplifies the kind of messy, uneven, ad hoc innovation that we're seeing in global financial governance, largely as a consequence of the global crisis.
0: Very good. So, uh, we no longer live in the Bretton Woods regime. There is no longer a United States and a United Kingdom being uh, uh, the mastermind of the global financial system. But my question is, is it China hoping to become, to take that role? Or is it instead uh, the mastermind behind those local heuracies that led the development of some new institutions like those that you mentioned now?
1: You know, I think it's actually something that's a little bit different. That I, I would not say that the Bretton Woods system is in tatters at the present time. Certainly there are challenges to the Bretton Woods system, particularly posed by the nationalism and the inward nature of US politics at the present time. We know that the US has long played the central driving role in decision making at the Bretton Woods institutions, and the Trump administration is, of course, very uncomfortable with multilateralism of all sorts, including in within the Bretton Woods system. And so certainly the Bretton Woods system is under challenge, but I would not go so far as to say that the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and related regional institutions like the Asian Development Bank or the African Development Bank have become irrelevant. What I would say instead is that what we have is a system in which the Bretton Woods architecture exists alongside an unfolding architecture that has kind of new nodes of power in the global South and East. And that's really what I mean by a pluripolar system. It's not the end of the Bretton Woods era, but rather an era in which the Bretton Woods systems, institutions, in some cases, compete with new institutions that are based in the global south and east in other cases they cooperate with them um, and this is part of the the messiness of the landscape because many of the newer institutions that I mentioned and even some of the older institutions in the global south and east have actually signed memoranda of understanding essentially agreements to cooperate with the Bretton Woods institutions and so we have in several instances, such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that's led by China, but which at this point um, has 85 um, members, uh, including some that are waiting for a session to the institution, a lot of the new loans that are being made by institutions in the global south and east are co-financed with the Bretton Woods Institution. And so I think that that also kind of complicates this question of whether or not the Bretton Woods era is ending. I would answer that question in the negative, but rather I would say that the Bretton Woods institutions are no longer the only game in town and that their officials have really recognized that and have had a very open and welcoming attitude toward the innovations that are coming from the global South and East. And I would note that this is radically different from the kind of hostility to Eastern and Southern institutions that the IMF and the World Bank had long expressed prior to the global crisis. Just as one example, um, during the East Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s, the Japanese finance ministry in the summer of 1997, as the East Asian crisis was just starting to blow up the Japanese finance ministry proposed the creation of what it called an Asian monetary fund. The idea was that this would be a new institution owned and controlled by Asian governments and which would provide crisis support financing absent the kind of painful and politically humiliating conditionalities associated with the IMF. That proposal really had a very, very short life because it was um, aborted because of some very deft political maneuvering between the IMF, China, and the US. And the US and the IMF in particular opposed the creation of the Asian Monetary Fund, arguing that essentially it would make the IMF irrelevant, and it would undermine U.S. power in the global financial system and would undermine the central role of the Bretton Woods institutions. I mention that as a context because what's happened during the global crisis, this began under former IMF managing director Dominique Strauss-Kahn, and has continued and, in fact, expanded under current IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde's leadership. The IMF has actually, and the World Bank, I should note, has welcomed the creation of these institutions and, three years ago, began to organize meetings with representatives of Southern and Eastern financial institutions to take place on the sidelines of the fall meetings of the Bretton Woods institutions. And the goal of those meetings were to foster deepening relationships among these institutions and also between these institutions and the IMF. And more recently, um, that is over the last year, the IMF has been discussing the development of protocols of cooperation, essentially rules of engagement, so that during a crisis, the IMF might potentially act as a backstop if a Southern or Eastern-based institution did not have the resources or the capacity to respond on its own to crises, which is surely the case. And so the IMF has been working with institutional partners to really develop these cooperation protocols, and the IMF is discussing the development of what it's calling a a precautionary instrument, essentially, uh, I'm sorry, a a cooperation instrument, I should say, which is um, just something which is on the drawing board at this point, but which is designed to create a kind of mechanism for cooperation with other institutions during crises. And so I think the IMF and the World Bank, for that matter, are very much responding to these institutional innovations in a way which is radically different from the hostility with which they greeted the Asian Monetary Fund in 1997. Uh, This
0: is very interesting because just a few years ago, the American administration, and it was uh, Obama then, not uh, Donald Trump, uh, tried to resist uh, the establishment of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, asking its allies uh, to not to join the European states, for example, not to join, but this failed because then everybody joined, in fact. Um, but maybe I have now uh, a couple more questions. The the, the last one, the one, before this, uh, a, a technical question, which is, what are the policy implications of your book? Because in your book, you argue in favor of a transformation and evolution which is not organized, not scripted. And uh, so what could be the policy implication of... Uh, of this
1: conclusion, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a really it's a really good question, um, and I think there there isn't a kind of single policy implication that stems from my book, and I think this really does reflect the kind of open endedness of what is happening and what is what is evolving. I mean, what I, what I see is that developing countries are experimenting not just with institutional forms, but also with policy practices, like practices that are designed to promote a greater degree of financial stability through the use of, let's say, a capital control as an instrument, which might uh, be thought of as something which promotes or enhances financial stability and is a response to crisis. And so what I think we are seeing is a kind of trial and a searching for new approaches to policies that borrow from some of the elements of neoliberalism and some elements of what we might think of as a non-neoliberal worldview. And so in this kind of space between the faltering neoliberalism, what we actually are seeing, I think, is a kind of searching for new approaches, but the new approaches, I think, aren't organized neatly, in a kind of ism, um, neoliberalism or post neoliberalism or Keynesianism, but rather we're seeing a kind of ad hoc array, an agnosticism or pragmatism that's emerging, um, which is really very different from the coherence of the neoliberal era of the last several decades. And so I don't have a very neat answer to your question about what's next in terms of policy. I think what's what's most likely to be next is a series of experiments, of trials. It's obviously a very chaotic time. We live at a moment where aperture, incoherence, and uncertainty are becoming the norm at the present time. This is a very risky, historically unique moment. And I think what policymakers in many countries are doing, whether we're looking at countries in the global north or the global south or the global east, are searching for strategies that are workable in the context of a very dynamic and uncertain moment. In some instances, of course, we see an illiberal turn emerging in many countries around the world, which we might think of as a kind of reaction to the ravages of neoliberalism and a reaction to the kind of elite cosmopolitanism um, associated with the European unification project. And so we see illiberalism emerging, of course, in many parts of the world. And so we might think of that. As one very unfortunate kind of policy implication um, and direction for policy going ahead. Obviously, that's not something we would we would want to embrace. Um, and that's certainly taking place in some parts of the world. I would say in other parts of the world, what we're seeing is more of a kind of hybridization and a searching for policies that enable countries to achieve their economic development goals, but through a variety of mechanisms, some of which we might think of as state capitalism, which I think is a good description of what's happening in China as a, as a kind of state capitalist system. In the US, we might want to say what we're looking at now is kleptocratic capitalism emerging And in many other parts of the world, we see a kind of mixture of neoliberal and non-neoliberal strategies that exist kind of uneasily alongside each other. And so the policy implications, I think, are much more unclear now than they have been at any point over the last several decades when neoliberalism provided a really neat and tidy script for what policymakers should do. And of course, in my view, it was a very unfortunate script that had many, many downsides and many losers. And again, I think the illiberalism that we're seeing in some parts of the world is in many respects related to the ravages of neoliberalism over the last decades. Um, And this is, I know I've talked mostly about Albert Hirschman's work, but I think, of course, Polanyi is very relevant in this context. If we think about a double movement that's occurring right now in many countries, that's a double movement against the ravages of neoliberalism and of elite-led globalization or cosmopolitanism. And well, all of which is coalescing in this messiness.
0: You've been very humble in saying that there are no policy implications, but in fact, uh, what you just described is a very important implication. And I'm sure that the book would be very helpful for political leaders, policymakers, managers of top global financial institutions. So this is a very timely an important and helpful contribution. Uh, maybe now I would like to ask you if you're working already on your next book, what is your current project?
1: Um, I have two projects that I'm working on now. Um, and one, uh, and I don't know yet whether either of them will, will uh, coalesce in the form of a book, but I am working on some, some research right now that looks at the implications of a Trumpian world for the global financial system. And so I'm really trying to extend the analysis of my book to now take account of the shocks associated with the unfolding Trumpian error, And in particular, um, the administration's discomfort with multilateralism, it's pulling away from the WTO and the Bretton Woods institutions, And what that really means, does it create space, a vacuum, essentially, that's being filled by China, or does it mean something else? Um, And that's something I'm really grappling with in my work right now on global finance in a Trumpian world. The other project that I'm just starting to work on um, looks at the risks of the cryptocurrency Um, explosion, and in particular, what cryptocurrencies really mean for countries of the global south and east. And so that's the other direction that I'm going in with some current work. Very good.
0: Good luck. But for the time being, congratulations for the book that we have discussed today. This is uh, When Things Don't Fall Apart, Global Financial Governance and Developmental Finance in an Age of Productive Incoherence. We have been talking with Professor Eileen Graebel from the University of Denver. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure and an honor.